Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Accidental Activist, presented by Mercedes-Benz. Before each episode this season, as a part of the I Am Mercedes campaign, we'll be profiling different young women named Mercedes who are all chasing big dreams. I'm Mercedes. I'm from Valencia, California, and I am 12 years old. I became interested in music. I started listening to it, and it became a big part of me. It's important for me to see women represented in music because it shows that we can have a voice and that we are powerful individuals. I want to impact the world with my passion for music by being able to tell people that it's going to be okay, they're not alone with what they're going through, and that there's always going to be someone there, and that they have a voice and they should use it no matter what other people are telling them. The advice that I have is to make sure that what you're doing, you enjoy it, because if you don't enjoy it, then you're not going to want to continue what you're doing. It means a lot for me to be part of this campaign. I probably would have never imagined myself here, but now that I am, it's making me a lot more proud of myself because now I know that what I say can matter. What a great story from an amazing young woman. And now onto this week's episode. Cantor trying to find positioning and does. It is Cantor. I lost my career just because of I stand up for the things that I believe in. Adam Silver, even himself, saying we have a business to run. China is different. Crop NBA finally got exposed. I don't care even if I get fined. I'm not taking them off. They said we are not talking about a fine. We're talking about getting banned. I don't care who you are. If you are fighting against a free media, I'm gonna say something about it. Hello everyone, I'm Aisha Sasei, and welcome back to The Accidental Activist, the show where we discover how an accidental turn of events can spark one's passion to change the world. Today's guest has sacrificed pretty much everything for the causes he believes in. I'm talking about NBA star Ennis Cantor Freedom. From a young age, Ennis was taught the importance of treating others with respect. But he was also a boy with a dream of playing basketball in the NBA. Never did he think the two would clash. In 2011, Ennis was the third overall draft pick by the Utah Jazz. Although he bounced around from team to team, Ennis was always a formidable force on the court, racking up some impressive stats. And he did all of this while condemning the Turkish government. See, while Enes was recording triple-doubles, his brothers and sisters back home in Turkey were fighting for their freedom and their fundamental human rights. And despite being thousands of miles away, Enes was using his platform and influence to fight right alongside them and to pressure the Turkish government into reform. 
This was all fine and dandy with the NBA until Inez set his sights on the human rights abuses happening in China. This was when things took a turn. So I'm excited for you all to hear my conversation with Enes Freedom, and I hope you find it as illuminating as I did. Enes Freedom, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate that. It's good to have you with us. I've been looking forward to this conversation. As I got ready for our chat, I kept thinking about the process of changing one's name. And I think the thing that kept coming back to me is with a new name, which is something you took a couple of years ago when you became a U.S. citizen, how does that change one's sense of identity? Well, I now can travel outside of America. I think that's the most beautiful thing because before I become a citizen, my name was on Interpol list, so I wasn't really allowed to leave America for the last five, six years. I was pretty much stuck uh, in this country. But then, you know, after becoming a citizen, changing my last name, now I have a new passport. I can actually like start traveling outside of America and, and do what I love to do. It was definitely been a tough process. I remember how I actually changed my name. The reason I changed my name, I remember I came to America for the first time back in 2009 and I was going to high school. And I remember we had a practice and after the practice, we all sitting down in a locker room and actually one of my teammates said something about the president. I saw his post on Facebook. I was like, dude, what are you doing? He looked at me, he was like, what's up? He said, well, I saw your post. You might be in jail the next day. And he was very confused. He was like, what are you talking about? I was like, well, don't you guys go to you know prison if you guys criticize the governor or president? And they all started to laugh. And they started to you know tell me about the freedom we have in America, freedom of speech and stuff. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. I was like, well, this is something that I've never experienced before. I mean, as you tell that story, it's important for our listeners to understand your reference point when you were making those comments, because you were born in Switzerland to Turkish parents, but you grew up in Turkey. So you have a completely different frame of reference and a frame of reference for freedom. Talk to us about what life was like growing up in Turkey and how you shaped that perspective. I moved back to Turkey when I was nine months. You know, I grew up in an area where politician keeps attacking the West to get more votes, to go viral, or to gain more support from their base. I remember I went downstairs to play with my friends. What I witnessed that day, I still remember. I was so shocked. My friends were burning American flags. They were burning, you know, Israeli flags and they were breaking crosses. And I told him, like, dude, what are you guys doing? He's like, well, the Americans are evil and Jewish people are devil and Christians are horrible. And I was like, what? And this is as a child. These are children. Yeah, this is as as when I was a kid. I was nine years old, and I remember immediately, they gave me a flag to burn it, actually. I throw it down. I ran upstairs to my mom. I was like, Mom, you know, my friends are telling me they hate America, they hate Israel, hate Christians and stuff. Like, what do I do? My mom said, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but do not hate anyone before you meet them. So I gave a promise to my mom that day. But I remember, you know, every time I turn on the TV, I, I, every time, you know, if there is a rally or there is anything, 
the, all these you know, politicians were keep attacking America, keep attacking Jewish people, Christian people to get more votes. Because unfortunately, the base is so uneducated, they just don't know any better. So whatever they've seen on TV, that's like, wow, okay, this is, I guess, what we should do too. So that's why uh, there are so many generation in Turkey growing up anti-Semitic, anti-American, anti-West. Actually, in some of the countries in Middle East, uh, front of classes, in schools, they have American flags. And if you don't step on them as a kid, you're not allowed to attend the class. So that's how crazy the, some of the countries are. And with that being said, you know, you referenced your mom saying to you, don't hate anyone until you meet them. You tell the story that your activism really started as a nine-year-old. That's when it kind of really opened up your mind. But your mother was a nurse. That's my understanding. Your father was an academic. Was it a home that was overtly political? Were you talking about issues? I mean, I know your mother made that comment, but were broader conversations about issues and the state of Turkey happening in your home? Well, it was a very well-educated, I'll tell you that. My dad even didn't want me to even play basketball. My mom did not care about me playing any sports. They were all about education. They taught me about respect, respecting others, respecting other cultures and religions and other people. But unfortunately, it's not many of the people like that in Turkey. I mean, where I grew up, the girls are usually don't even go to school. Their parents says, well, you know, let's not put you in a school and you'll get married at the age of like 14, 15, unfortunately. And then their life become horrible. They literally become slaves because they get married with men who are like 40, 45 years old. And their children, their children having their childhoods taken. Exactly. You talk about your parents being very academically minded, academically focused, wanting very different things for you than playing sports. So when did you realize that basketball was actually your passion and it wasn't going to be about, you know, hitting the books? Well, I actually wanted to be a soccer player because that's like the number one sport in Turkey. And I was too tall for it, too slow for it, actually. So it <laughs> didn't really work. But then I just started playing basketball and I fell in love with it. But I think I moved to Istanbul and to play actually professional basketball. And I became a professional when I was like, well, 15, 16 years old, very early. And after making my first check, my dad is like, okay, from now on you play basketball. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, like, school is important and education, whatever, but you know, you play, you play basketball. But the the thing is that that money that you made in Turkey became a problem when you came to the U.S. Huge problem. Talk to me about that. It was a crazy situation because I was 17 years old when I decided to come to America because my dad wanted me to come here, play basketball and get my education at the same time, you know, because I just didn't want to sign this contract in Turkey when I was, what, 16 and I was going to come to MBA when I was 22. It was too late. And also in Turkey, I either have to pick education or sports. You cannot do both. So I came here, but when I was 17 years old, my dad signed a contract with one of the shoe companies in Turkey. And they made me a professional basketball player. So that's why I couldn't play high school. And then just because of I was taking money from my Turkish club team, which I did not take in my dad's okay, because I was 17. NCA said, well, sorry, you are ineligible. You're not allowed to play basketball ever again. So it was definitely a tough situation for me. 
nonetheless, you continued your dreams of, of joining the NBA, which you eventually did. But I do want to ask you, before you got into the NBA, what was your idea of the NBA before you joined it? First of all, I mean, back then, I didn't really care about anything but just playing basketball, having fun with my teammates and stuff. I didn't know that I'm, I was going to have the platform that I have right now. I mean, I, every kid in the world who's playing basketball is a dream to become an NBA player. I think the idea of the NBA is I just wanted to get into NBA to represent my country, my flag, my people. And I was just one of the, I think when I, when I got into NBA, there was only like, three or four Turkish NBA players played in NBA. So I was like, well, I'm going to become one of them. That's very exciting. You know, I was going to represent my whole country, my family, my people, the people I love. And when you joined the NBA, just to be clear, there was still that love for Turkey. I mean, course, and I think yes. there's always there's also a distinction to be made between the criticisms you've expressed for the Turkish government and your love for the country, correct? There's a huge difference. I mean, whenever I talk about Turkey, people are always mistaken that I'm like, I'm don't like my country. I'm, people are wrong. I love my country. I love my flag. I love my people. Even when I get drafted, the first thing they said from Turkey, you know, my problem is with the current regime. It's not with my country or it's not with my people. I love my country. The reason I'm so outspoken is because I love my country. And I remember, you know, when I heard my name from back then, it was David Stern. With the third pick in the 2011 NBA draft, the Utah Jazz select... Enes Kanter from Istanbul, Turkey, and the University of Kentucky. And I look at the crowd, there was a Turkish flag. I was like, wow, this is something so amazing. I'm finally one of the three or four NBA players who are representing the whole Turkey, almost 85 million people. So it was uh, definitely very exciting. You were drafted in 2011, as you expressed, with this love for Turkey in your heart. And then things changed and you started to speak out about the government. What was the transition? What was the trigger? It was hard because I remember, so no high school because I had a deal with shoe company, no college because I took money from my old uh, club team. And then I finally got drafted. I'm like, well, if I'm finally going to play basketball. I'm so excited. Then lockout happened. We lock out at the conclusion of this deal. So in my head, I was like, I was so frustrated. No high school, no college, no MBA. I was really frustrated. And then December, they said the lockout is over. I stopped playing basketball. Like I said, again, my first two years, all I cared about was playing basketball, nothing else. But then, you know, I remember for the first time I was outspoken, it was back in 2013. And there was a big corruption scandal happening in Turkey. President Erdogan and his family and some of the members of the Congress were involved in it. And that, that was the fact, like, first time I actually said something about it. What did you say? Do you remember what you said? So after he got, he got caught, he started to put innocent people in jail. He started to put prosecutors, lawyers, judges, journalists. He started to shut down media. That's why we're talking about this corruption scandal. And I was like, I don't care who you are. If you are fighting against a free media, I'm going to say something about it. As an NBA player, I literally put a tweet out there to not fight with free media. Like I said, because the NBA platform became a conversation here in the United States and Turkey. And I was like, hmm, even one single tweet can affect this much. And from now on, I'm going to start to pay attention about what's going on in my country more. And you're thinking, I'm going to do this and it's going to be a powerful tool, mm -hmm. which it is. And your family's reaction is what? Different, way different. So the more I study, the more like big news outlets started to give me a platform. 
because it was all over the world how he stole money from people, innocent people, and put innocents in jail. So I started to go on these like TV channels and internationally in America, I started to write op-eds, started giving interviews. And every time I say something, it was becoming a conversation and that really bothered the Turkish government. So then my family were really affected. My dad was a scientist. He got fired from his job. My sister went to medical school for six years. She still cannot find a job. My little brother was playing basketball. I think that's the saddest one. He got kicked out in every team because of the same last name. So they were getting affected so much, they had to put a statement out there and said, we are disowning Ennis publicly. Turkish government didn't believe that. They sent police to my house in Turkey and they raided the whole house and they took every electronics away. Phones, computers, laptops, iPads, because they wanted to see if I am still in contact with my family or not, which they couldn't find no evidence because I wasn't but they still took my dad in jail for a while. He's been going in and out of Turkish you know, jails and courts for seven years. And then we put so much pressure with politicians and with media. So Turkey, they had to let him go. And then, you know, they revoked my passport, they detained me in Romania, and then they put my name on Interpol list. At any point, did you just think the price is too high? You know, actually, a lot of... I was, when I was going through this, a lot of all my teammates were asking me that question. Like, are you crazy? I get that question so many times. Obviously at the end, it's my family and I haven't seen them almost like nine years now. People know my story because I play in NBA, but there are so many stories out there, so many families out there, their situation is way worse than mine. And I remember looking at these numbers, there's actually a really good website, turkeyperch.com. There are so many innocents were in jails and there are so many reports out there were saying that there are so many people in jails getting tortured and raped. And last numbers I was looking at it, there were 17,000 innocent women with almost 1,000 babies and children in jail right now waiting for help. I mean, think about it. These women had nothing to do with politics or Turkish government. These are just housewives just because of they worked in places like media out there, schools, dormitories, universities that are against Erdogan, Erdogan put them in jail. You know, that's how crazy the situation is. Amnesty International Human Rights Watch have documented the the repression of many in in media from the courts. Any opposition to Mr. Erdogan um, has been curtailed, and that's been well documented by various sources and outlets. With that said, I do just want to circle back to your family. What's the state of things between you now? So the, right now, there's still no communication between me and my family because, I mean, they listen on the phones and track down everything that they do. They took their passport away, the government, and now they're not allowed to travel. Last time I saw them, it was back in, it was like almost nine years ago. So I have a brother in Japan. So I talked to him. It's like, hey, how's mom doing? How's dad doing? How's my sister? So the government cannot really touch him or do anything because... Every time that they do anything now, I became too powerful, I guess, in the United States and all over the world. And with media, it becomes a conversation and it looks really bad on the Turkish government. But the normal people, like whenever they go on the street, they really harass them. I mean, just recently, I remember my brother was uh, telling me my dad went to the supermarket and he was asking for some things and the guy spit on his face and say, get out of here. Like, you are a father of a, a terrorist. They kick him out of the mosque which is a house of God. Time for a quick break. We'll have more of my conversation with Enes Cantor Freedom when we come back. 
Welcome back, everyone. Here's the second half of my conversation with Enes Cantor Freedom. You haven't just made headlines for what you've said about Turkey and the Turkish government, but also for comments you've made about China. I want to shift gears and talk about that. Of course. Because considering, you know, obviously Turkey makes sense to people. It's your home. Those are your roots. There's so many issues in the world. Why turn your attention to China? So just last year, I was doing a basketball camp in New York with one of the congressmen, Hakim Jeffries. It was amazing. A lot of people showed up. And then after the basketball camp, you know, I sit down. I was giving autographs and taking pictures one by one. So I remember taking a picture with this kid. And then his parent was taking a picture. And he pretty much called me out in front of everybody. Kids were there. Media was there. My friends were there. And he said, how can you call yourself a human rights activist? when your Muslim brothers and sisters are getting tortured and raped every day in concentration camp in China. And I'm still smiling for the camera, for his kid. And I turned around, I was like, I promise I'm going to get back to you. So I remember canceling everything that day. I went back to my hotel room and I was like, oh my God, like, what am I doing? I mean, obviously the last eight years, I was focusing on Turkey because my flight was so full. My family is there, I haven't seen them. But then I'm like, human is human. People are people. There are so many people out there who are waiting for help. So I was like, anyway, I started to study about what's happening with Uyghurs. And then after that, there's a link popped out. I clicked on it and it was about Tibetans and then Hong Kongers and then Taiwanese people. I was like, well, this is pretty much another genocide which is happening in China and no one really talking about it. So I promised myself, I was like, I don't care what it takes, I'm going to talk about it. But obviously on internet, you can't find all kind of news. You don't know which one to trust or not. Fake news, And real China news. denies it. China exactly. denies these exactly. reports. So I reached out to my manager immediately. I was like, listen, I need you to find me a concentration camp survivor. And he's like, what are you talking about? He's like, yeah, I want to sit down with someone who has been in concentration camp in East Turkestan, or you call it Xinjiang. He said, okay. And it took a while, but we found a woman. So we sit down, we had a conversation, and I remember she was telling me about, about the gang rape. She was telling me about the torture methods. She was telling me about the forced sterilization and abortion. She was telling me about the organ harvesting in concentration camps. And I was like, I don't care how much money, business or whatever is involved. If you are carrying a heart, you have to care about these people. You have to speak up about these people. So end of our conversation, I asked her, I was like, listen, how can I help you? She said, I'm good. I don't need you to help me. And I was shocked. I'm like, what are you talking about? We, we, we've been talking almost one hour now. Then why do we have this conversation? She said, uh, well, I'm in America. I'm not in China. I can eat whatever I want, go wherever I want. I can do whatever I want. Help those people. Don't help me. There are 3 million people waiting for help. So at that moment, I'm like, okay, I, I'm, I'm going to do it. And then the next two, three months in the summertime, I just study about what's going on over there. I want to add that um, a number of, of outlets, the BBC, CNN, have all reported on yeah. what's happening in, in Uyghur camps in China and the reports of widespread sexual abuse and gang rape and torture are well documented. And a lot of a number of people who say they were in these camps have spoken out about their experiences. It was one thing to talk about Turkey, 
And when we talked about Turkey, I asked about your family's reaction. Now you're talking about China. Let's talk about the NBA's reaction, because that was also something very different. So, you know, everybody can go on front front of a camera, make everything and post it. Everybody can tweet something about it or give an interview about the things that they care about. But I actually wanted to do it in a very unique way. I remember when I was a kid, obviously, I grew up as an NBA fan, so I was watching NBA all the time. And I remember the first thing I was like, whenever I watched a player, the first thing I was like looking at was the shoes, what color it is, what brand, if it's comfortable. The next day I was waking up and I was telling my dad, please buy those shoes for me. Every kid in the world loves shoes. So I was like, let's come up with this like a crazy, crazy project where we put all these struggles, all this pain in basketball shoes, which is made 100% no slave labor, which took me months to find it. And then I reach out to these different artists around the world, which been oppressed by their government. I told them to create me these shoes. So they come up with this beautiful arts that we put on the shoes. And I was like, you know what? That first topic is going to be about Tibetans. So I come up with this idea. I put the whole thing in my shoes, a free Tibet. And I remember I was playing for Boston Celtics and our first game was against uh, New York Knicks at Madison Square Garden, open at night, was on ESPN, national TV. The whole world was watching it. One of the biggest uh, rivalry for Boston Celtics. So I put the shoes on, I went out there and I started to, you know, warm up and all the players were looking at my shoes like so weird. And I remember that we sang the national anthem, we came in a huddle, and it was a minute before the huddle. And there was two gentlemen from Boston Celtics who worked for the NBA came to me and said, you have to take your shoes off, please. And I was like, what are you talking about? I was like, well, your shoes have been getting so much attention internationally, you have to take your shoes off. And at that point, I was very confused because I, the last two months, I was like, I read the rule book. There was nothing against it. And all the players before, you know, put all kind of messages on their shoes. And I was with them. And I even put those two, like Black Lives Matter, Breonna Taylor. And I was like, well, if that is human rights, obviously this is too. And this was happening a minute before the game in a team huddle. I was like, nope, I'm not taking it. It was a perfect moment because I was just getting ready for my citizenship test. So I closed my eyes. I'm like, okay, there are 27 amendments. My first amendment, freedom of speech. I was like, no, I'm not taking them off. I even told them, like, I don't care even if I get fined, I'm not taking them off. They said, we are not talking about a fine. We're talking about getting banned. At that moment, I was like, oh my God, this is serious. So at the halftime, I played zero minutes. I went back to my locker room. I picked up my phone. There was thousands of notifications. I looked at my manager that sent me a text message and he said, every Celtics game is banned in China. It literally took China 24 minutes to ban every Celtics game on television the rest of the year. And I pretty much said to myself, well, that actually clearly helps people understand that they're the dictatorship and censorship. So that game, I played zero minutes, which I played every game before that. I remember after the game, one of the players walked up to me in the locker room and said, you know, this is your last year in the league, right? You are not going to get another contract after this. And did you believe him when he said that? Yeah, because he was a person that was my true friend, good friend. Now, I should point out at this point that Adam Silver... The NBA commissioner has said that he's 
in total support of you speaking out. Various officials have said that it's not been about the shoes, it's about your dress code and it actually contravening dress code. You say what? And, and to make the point is, you effectively also said a few weeks ago that you didn't receive any interest during the NBA free agency period. Talk to me about that. Do you think, despite those statements made by Adam Silver and other NBA officials, do you think you have been blackballed for speaking out on China? You know, I talk about the Turkey last 10 years. I did not get one phone call. Actually, Adam Silver texted me twice uh, and said, whatever you need, we support you. And this is about Turkey. And then China thing happened. I talk about China one day. My phone was ringing once every hour. The crazy thing is, it wasn't only NBA, it was NBPA, the Player Association, saying that do not wear those shoes ever again. NBA is pressuring us. Please don't do it. They were pressuring me and my manager so much. I was like, you know what? Fine. I'm not going to wear free to shoes ever again. And the next game, I wore free Uyghur shoes. So at that point, they understand they're not going to be able to you know, handle me. So after that, not many people know. And I actually don't really tell this to anywhere. But I'm like, I don't think I'm going to be getting able to get another contract after this, so might as well say it. Daryl Morey. So two years ago, he tweeted something about free Hong Kong and became a huge mess for the NBA. He was the GM of Houston Rockets back then. So he reached out to me and said, listen, they took my tweet down two years ago. They made me apologize. They made me say this and that, but you don't apologize. You keep going, you keep going what you're doing and because you are standing for the truth. And I was like, at that point, I'm like, I don't care what it takes. I'm just going to just, you know, speak out. I remember after the second game, my agent called me and he said, listen, I work for you. I don't work for the NBA. So I'm just going to be honest with you. If you stop talking about China, people are going to probably forget about this in four or five days. And you can just go out there and say that you were not educated enough and you'll be fine. So we can get another contract. But if you say another word about China, if you do another thing, that whatever the NFL did to Colin Kaepernick, that NBA is going to do it to you. You are not going to be able to get a contract ever again. And I was like, okay, fine. This is a question for activists all over the world who, when they see the stakes being that high, keep going. What keeps you going? What kept you going? I remember just like seeing the pain of that woman's eyes telling me that women are getting gang rapes and tortures and telling me about the organ harvesting. And the more you study, the more we meet with people, you saw, like, I was seeing like the hope that I was giving to people. I was like someone obviously who has a celebrity, I guess, status that is giving hope to people who's been oppressed under Chinese dictatorship. So then after the third game, and then the, my third game was I was criticizing Nike. And then after that, I had a conversation with Adam Silver on the phone, 30 minutes, which Adam Silver, even himself saying, we are business, we have a business to run. China is a different... It's a huge market for the NBA. Exactly. It's a billions of dollars. So I, I saw like Adam Silver was admitting that. And it was actually all over the internet. And not, not just him. It was, a, I believe, a recording of Adam Silver, MBPA, one of the owners and stuff. So I was like, well, there you go. Like, what else I can show it to you? You know, before the Celtics, I played for Portland Trailblazers. I averaged double-double. I started many games. We made the playoffs. So I'm, I'm asking from the people in NBA, so you're telling me a year later, I forgot how to play basketball. And people will laugh at that. Even like my teammates, when we were on the bench, they were looking at me like, dude, like you have to be out there. 
Like you have to play. I remember how many of my teammates were telling me that every game. But you're not out there. And right now you don't have a team. And in addition to the comments you've made about the, the NBA and, as you say, being blackballed by them, you've also spoken out about other NBA players who you feel haven't used their platform in the right way. You've made comments about LeBron and others. You know, when you call yourself a human rights activist, social justice uh, warrior and stuff, right? You cannot be going out there and signing a deal with these uh, hypocrite companies like Nike when, you know, your shoes are being literally made by slaves in China. That is unacceptable. So I did pay, pay the price. What about LeBron? Now, I want to ask you this question because it was one that was on my mind. Again, there are so many issues out there in the world and people choose their issue. LeBron from what I've seen, has essentially focused on U.S.-focused issues, social justice issues. Is it right for you to criticize him because he's chosen issues that are different from you? First of all, let me just tell you this, because whenever I criticize LeBron, people sometimes might understand it wrong. I respect his game and what he does on the court. That's one. And two, whenever I criticize LeBron, it, it's not about just LeBron. I called out so many other uh, players true. and owners and CEOs. The reason I criticize LeBron because he is the face of the NBA and the face of Nike. So whenever I criticize LeBron, it's not only about him. If you are a player, if you're an athlete and you are calling yourself a social justice warrior or freedom fighter or human rights activist, if you are signing a deal or a contract with companies like, like Nike, let me give you an example of Nike. Nike, what he does in America, unbelievable. They stand with Black Lives Matter, no Asian hate, Latino community, LGBTQ community. But when it comes to China, they're silent. When it comes to like this, the slave labor and all that stuff, they're silent. So if you're a player that's signing deals with these companies, not only in Nike, I mean, there are so many of them out there, that is just one of the biggest hypocrisy to me. Two years ago, uh, when Daryl Morey tweeted that thing and they asked LeBron about it, and, you know, he said, well, he's not educated enough and he just didn't know his, I guess, research and stuff. And I was like, are you serious? Like that, that was the one thing that really frustrated me. What I care about is him using his voice because he is signed with so many Chinese companies out there. You also leveled the accusation of hypocrisy at the owner of the Brooklyn Nets most recently. He's not the only one, obviously, but he is the biggest one. News came out on ESPN. It, they were saying that I believe 40 NBA owners got tied up $10 billion in China. And the biggest one, obviously, the guy who works for the, pretty much CCP and the owner, one of the owners of Alibaba, I believe, is the owner of Joe Tsai. And this was linked to the Kyrie Irving yes. tweet, just to explain to people that Kyrie Irving retweeted a link to a, a documentary that people deemed to be anti-Semitic. Josiah made comments, you came back and said. So I think what Kyrie obviously shared that thing, I say promoting, he said he wasn't promoting. Him posting about Alex Jones and, and all that stuff. I was like, come on, you are way better than that. But then Josiah was saying, oh, what he did was wrong, which he could have just go and talk to the men one-on-one. I don't understand why he, as an owner, why he would put anything like that out there, even put more pressure on Kyrie. Kyrie might be not educated enough the situation that he has done. Maybe he is, maybe he's not, I'm not sure. But as an owner, why would you put a tweet out there? You know, why would you put 
put him down and put yourself off just because of you want to show people that, oh yeah, you care about the things that are happening, which you pretty much, you know, financing genocide happened in China. You're literally one of the worst owner in NBA right which now. Which I'm sure he would deny. Everybody knows now. If you say there is no genocide happening in China, people will literally laugh at that. Even like the United Nation, the UN Human Rights Commissioner said, yes, there is a genocide. You ask all the politicians, Democrats, Republicans, whoever, everybody knows the, the, the genocide happened in China. Your outspokenness, as we said, in the most recent example, of course, being the Josai exchange, you know, again, right now you don't have a team. Has the activism overtaken the sport now for you? I just turned 30 and I could play another like four, five, six, whatever years, you know. I love basketball and basketball is my first job and people don't understand. People think I hate the NBA. No, I don't hate the NBA. I'm very thankful for the NBA. God first, then NBA, because NBA gave me the platform that I have right now. NBA gave me my voice. NBA helped me so much to grow and have fun. But I believe this is bigger than basketball. This is bigger than NBA. This is bigger than myself. This is bigger than anything that that they can offer me. I mean, I could have played another like five, six years and just say I signed a mid-level exception. That's like almost 40 million in six years. I could care less. Like I said, again, I want to play basketball. I don't think it's going to happen ever again. I talked to many players, many basketball experts, many owners, and they said, listen, you know, you took a brave stand, but, you know, it's going to come with tough consequences. But I mean, it, at the end, listen, it just, I just couldn't sleep at night while I, I was dribbling the ball in America on the other side of the world. And I'm not only talking about China. I mean, you look at what's happening in Iran, what's happening in Russia, Venezuela, Cuba, some of the African countries out there. It needs to be talked, but people talk about every conversation, every country, every dictatorship, but China. And NBA is not the only problem. You you look at Hollywood, you look at big tags, academias, Congress, local Congress, Wall Street. So it's like NBA is not the only one, but it is just a start. What's your definition of success? Like, as you do this work and you continue to speak out, because that's the other thing that as, as an activist, you, you have to have an idea of the destination. Without an action, speaking out is nothing to me. You can speak out, you bring awareness, you give people hope. Sure, it's good, but look, without action, is nothing to me, you know? So that's why now I work with different group of people. I work with Hong Kongers, Taiwanese people. I work with, you know, Tibetans and Venezuelans and Uyghurs and Cuba. So now the whole world knows what's going on. So the next step is taking actions. We just created a bill in the Senate and Congress. Actually, it got signed by almost every member of the Congress. So if you are a company, which if you have anything to do with slave labor, you're not allowed to step into America. It passed. President Biden signed it. Already, my friends are telling me that we are seeing the effects of it. If you're a company, if you still want to do with slave labor, it's going to cost you billions of dollars. So that is that is an action. And that is only, only for Uyghurs. Now we are working on so many different groups. I mean, I think the success to me is, is when a political person is being freed, when the women are stopped getting tortures in jail or rapes in jail, when... I know that this, the whole world knows about these dictatorships now. 
uh, when I go to Wikipedia and said the, the, the dictatorships in, in the world, whenever I see Turkey is there, whenever I see China is there, I'm like, well, okay, now people start to realize what's going on. I'll tell you this, it is tough because of the obviously hypocrisy side of the uh, politics, because of the they trying to have this diplomacy with the dictatorships out there, it does become very, very tough, you know, because, for example, Turkey, I've been working with Turkey issues so many times and America is actually don't want to push Turkey to Russia. So they don't want to take some real actions, but like you have to push for it. So it's like it's, it is like a full time job, but I, you know, I like it. Last question. Are you happy? You've paid a tremendous price personally. Professionally, you've talked about what success is. That's still a long way off. Let's be realistic. But right now, and this kind of freedom, when you think about where you're at, are you happy? That's a really good question. Um, am I happy? Not yet, I will say. We are not free. I am not free till everyone is free. And if I'm happy, then I feel like I'm betraying my other human rights activists, fellows, or people around the world. I remember the day my dad got freed. I was like, okay, well, who's next? You know, who, who are we gonna free, free next? People were telling me, well, your dad got finally free. You can relax now, you can take a vacation, you can you know, stop talking about any of these issues. I'm like, my, my job is just starting. It's not, this is not the end of it. There are millions of thousands of people out there who's been oppressed by their government and there are so many people are in jail right now waiting for help so i believe till the last person is freed i don't i don't want to say i'm happy i know it's a i know it's a crazy dream i know it's like we all have to dream we have to have destinations without dream you lose hope yeah i think and without hope i guess we are nothing well, and this kind of freedom, thank you for, for speaking so honestly and passionately with us. We wish you every success. The world needs these things to happen, these changes to be made. We wish you every success, but I also wish you some happiness along the way. That means a lot to me. Thank you so much. Despite years of being an activist and working with other activists, I was still blown away by Enes's commitment to his cause. Because of his outspokenness, he has lost his career, his family, and his native country. And yet he keeps fighting because he believes he won't know peace until those who are being oppressed by their governments are truly free. And as is not only a shining example of an activist, but he also demonstrates what it actually means to be one. There are costs associated with this work, and he is paying the price. But it's a price Enes is willing to pay. I think if more of us took a page out of Enes' book and sacrificed a thing or two, the world would be a much kinder, more respectful and just place. The other thing that struck me about Enes is his prioritization of learning. Education was a priority in his household growing up, and it's clear that has stuck with him today. Enes could have turned a blind eye to the abuses in Turkey while here in the US, and he could have just as easily ignored the comment about China's Muslims from the parent at that basketball camp. But instead, he hit the books with what appears to be as much intensity as he did the court. He studied what was going on in these countries and spoke with individuals with first-hand accounts so that he could adequately speak on these issues. There's no excuse for claiming ignorance in today's day and age. Information is at our fingertips and we need to use it to educate ourselves. 
so that we can be active members in the fight. Enes Kanter Freedom is an inspiration to all of us at home and abroad. The costs are high, but think about it, the stakes are even higher. After our interview, we reached out to the Brooklyn Nets, the office of Joe Sy, the NBA Players Association, the NBA front office, and the office of NBA Commissioner Adam Silver for a response to Enes' statements, but received no comment. Thank you so much to all of our listeners, and thank you to our season sponsor, Mercedes-Benz. As always, check the show notes for resources and learning materials from our guests. Please take time to rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on Apple Podcasts. Follow me at Aisha Sasay on Twitter and on Instagram at I am Aisha Sasay. The Accidental Activist is a Wonder Media Network production. Executive producers are Jenny Kaplan and me, Aisha Sasay. Our producers are Brittany Martinez, Taylor Williamson and Chelsea Daniel. Our editor is Liz Smith and our production assistant is Abby Delk. Guest booking by Mary Hollis Williams of Good Talent Lodge. Special thanks to Arella Productions. Take care, everyone. Until the next time, bye for now.